I want to ask you a, just a simple question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? This is a question I grew up with. Anyone else grew up with this question? This is the question we love to ask. We're uh, maybe asked by our parents, by our youth leader, by our pastor. And if we're really, uh, you know, if we're really serious in our faith, we learn to ask other people in various ways, uh, chick tracks uh, in particular. But, you know, whatever happens to be your part. Um, it's a question I grew up in. It's a question many still love to throw around today. Uh, another friend it's about relationship, not religion. You've heard this, and I, I agree with these in part. So I'm going to ask you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Nowadays, I, I can't ask that question without thinking of the song, Personal Jesus. Anyone familiar with this song? Yeah? I happen to be introduced to it backwards through uh, Johnny Cash's uh, remake of it, but then I discovered the original's like even better. But, you know, it goes, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. What does it mean for you and for your faith to really become, your faith to become your own? Not your parents' faith, not your church's faith. What does it mean for, for, for our God to become your God? I want you to hold on to that. By the end, I hope to offer at least one answer to that question. We're continuing our series on Genesis, and we're specifically looking at the person of Jacob. If you remember, God set uh, Abraham, uh, set apart Abraham, and Abraham had Isaac, and the blessing went down to Isaac, and Isaac grows up and has Jacob and his brother Esau, and the blessing ends up going to Jacob. And we've been looking at this struggle between Jacob and his brother, a struggle that was promised and prophesied from before they were born, while they were still in their mother's womb. Last week, we looked at Jacob, who left his family. He went to a foreign land. He became wealthy, um, uh, even though it wasn't easy, and all the way to the point where he has to leave his foreign land to go back home and face his brother, who had threatened to kill him. Jacob's on his way back home with his sort of nation tribe that's beginning to grow, and he hears that his brother's going to meet him with 400 men. Remember from last week, or if you listened to the podcast, uh, I understand there's a few less, a few less people here last week. Um, appreciate all the brave souls who sat in the rain, and uh, we did a whole service. It was something to remember. Um, of course, we, you're welcome for us coming prepared today, and that means it won't rain. Uh, he knows that someone doesn't show up with 400 men unless, you're gonna, unless you want to fight. And so he becomes terrified. He starts freaking out, and he does a couple things to avoid battle. He divides his tribe in half so that if there is a fight, only, only uh, half will be killed. He, he prays, and his heart is that God would protect him and his, and his families and his mother and his children. Um, he, he, then he sends a gift ahead to smooth the way. Uh, and finally, he insists that everyone call him servant and call his brother Lord or master as a way of kind of lifting his brother up and humbling his brother. That's what we talked about last week. That's where we left off. Today, we're going to see what happens next. His brother and 400 men are on their way, and Jacob has done everything he can to face him without a fight. And so here's what happens. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 32 and into uh, Genesis chapter 33. We're going to start at Genesis 32, verse 22. So if you have your Bibles or you have your smartphone, you can pull that out, and uh, you can follow along if you want. Um, I will be skipping a number of verses, but I'll let you know where I'm at as we go. So starting with Genesis chapter 32, verse 32. Here's what happens next. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford at Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, 
he sent over all of his possessions. So he's crossing the river that separates the world from what would eventually become the promised land. He's entering back into his family's land that was promised Abraham. And in the morning, he's going to face off with his brother. It's nighttime at this point, so he's crossing while it's safe. Uh, He's going to face off with his brother. So he takes his family, and he crosses the border with all of his possessions to next verse. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. The thing about this verse is funny to me. Um, There is zero setup here. If you're not paying attention, you're going to miss what's going on. It's like a professor who's telling a story and then just starts listing his groceries to see if anyone's paying attention. Or like I tell you a story about Finn. Me and Finn went for a walk and I dropped Finn off inside and then a guy wrestled me till night. You're like, huh? Like there has to be a few things that happened before that. But that's how the story's presented. Completely out of nowhere, completely surprised. Jacob, just a few hours before, he prayed that God would protect him. Protect him. And before he even faces his brother, he's met with someone in the night, which is never a good thing, who fights him. And when when he's alone, when he's left everyone on the other side of a river, he's completely vulnerable. There's no one that's going to be able to protect him. No one that's going to be able to come and help him if he gets in trouble. He's by himself, which means, uh, and then he fights all night long. In this little verse, we just told that he fights all night long, which means if this fight made into a movie, longest fight scene of all, of all fight scenes. All night long, he's fighting this person. And during the night, in the midst of this fight, Jacob and the man that he's fighting learn a few things about each other. And we're going to slowly be told what those things are. So next verse, it says this. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, pause there for a second. This is insane. The, the, you'll see why. The man, whoever this man is, we're not told yet, realizes he can't take Jacob. The man, whoever this man is, who started the fight, by the way, in the middle of the night while he's alone, comes to realize that Jacob is a better fighter. That's huge. Hold on to that. So when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. So here's what we learned about Jacob. He's a really good fighter. The man who, we aren't told who he is yet, uh, but, but this man can't win a fight against Jacob. Even when he does a low blow and uses some sort of mysterious thing to give him this injury in his hip, he still also says, Jacob, let me go. Like, Jacob has some sort of death hold in this wrestling match with this man. Jacob's whip, hip is wounded, and this man is, still has to ask Jacob to let go. So here's how Jacob replies. Jacob replied, I will not let go unless you bless me. Ah, we are now led into a little bit of the secret that Jacob must have figured out. Because you don't ask a blessing from just anyone. You certainly don't ask a blessing from a guy that fights you in the middle of the night. Like, that's not, like, that's usually a thief, that's a villain. But he must have figured out there's something special about it. You ask blessings from your parents, from kings, from God, from priests and prophets. You know, you ask from people with power and honor. You say, bless me. So he's something, he must have figured out something was special about this guy. So next verse, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So there it is. This man is in some way, in some mysterious way, we're not told how, God in the flesh. 
Jacob has struggled with God and with others and overcome. Think about this. Jacob prays to God for protection and deliverance. Then in the middle of the night, Jacob is met by God, but not in God in God's full glory, but God in the flesh as some sort of human or representation of human. God stoops to, Jack's, uh, to Jacob's level. Now, even as God in the flesh, the idea I think could be is that God could take on any form that he wanted. God could have took on the form of Samson or Goliath. I mean, anyone, right? But God takes on the form of someone who can't beat Jacob in a wrestling match. Now, now if you're God and you're going to wrestle someone, someone who you have a lesson to teach, then you're, aren't you going to take on a form where you could really teach them a lesson? Like every karate movie I've ever seen, the sensei, no matter how old they are, teaches the student a lesson, and it's usually by kicking their butt. Or am I just misunderstanding the genre? It's that trick where, you know, he pinches the hand or he knows where his weakness is, and the sensei teaches this overly ambitious and sort of manipulative, and he has a character defect, Jacob, a lesson. But not here. God takes on a form that is, all, by all accounts, an equal match to Jacob. They fight all night. And God, in this case, can't beat Jacob. It's a draw. One is wounded, but one has him in a death hold. If you've ever been so mad at God that you wanted to just hold him down and let him have it, this is the story for you. Now, there are many stories of God showing up in strange ways, but none more profound than this. God shows up in a form that can be defeated. And while that might sound extreme, it's not the last time God will show up in a form capable of being defeated. As follower of Jesus, the one who hung on the cross, we get this. Which might be why God goes on to say that this, is, this wrestling match should define what it means to be in a relationship with God. Did you see that? This is a major event in not only Jacob's life, but in the life of the people of God. Jacob gets a new name. But this name, unlike Abraham's new name, because he was Abram, and other people who got new names, and they, this name will become the name of the people of God, Israel. Like, even when I say Israel, some of you are like, oh, I didn't know that was Jacob's name. I just think of the nation of Israel. This name now is synonymous with a nation, not a person. And this name means the one who struggles with God. With a little bit of interpretation privileges, it, it doesn't quite mean that exactly, but that's what the Bible tells us. Uh, it's implied. Israel's name, the name given to the people of God, points us to the fact that God stoops to our level, engages us at our level, and our faith is one of struggling with God. Of all the names that God could have given to his people, it's amazing they get this one, Israel. I mean, of all the events they could have been named after. For example, wouldn't it be great if they were named after the Exodus? They could have been some Hebrew word that means the people who are delivered. Or, or maybe when Moses gets the law, they could have been the people who obeyed, which wouldn't have been a great name for them or us. Or they could have been, you know, when David builds the temple, they could have been the people who worship. No, they get named after a wrestling match as the people who struggle with God. We are the people who struggle with God. This story started all the way back at the beginning of Jacob's life before he was born as a story where Jacob would struggle with his brother Esau. 
But now we have seen that the real story, the big story, is about how the people of God are defined not so much by their struggle with each other, but their struggle with God. And that's how Jacob will remember this place. It goes on in verse 30, if you jump ahead. It says, so Jacob called this place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. I just want a side note. Oftentimes when people met God in the Old Testament, it usually included the line, I met God and my life was spared. Just if you want to understand how awesome God was and is. It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And then it says, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Up to this point, he would have remembered this place as the place where he was afraid of his brother. Now it will be remembered as the place where he faced off with God. And he will remember it, right, forever with every step he takes because he's got a limp now. Every step for the rest of his life, unless it heals, he's got this limp to remind him of the struggle he had with God. Now, after all of that, after all that, he's ready to face his brother. And so God has done nothing uh, to help him win a battle with his brother if they decide to fight. In fact, fighting this Jacob all night has probably worn him out. It's definitely given him a, a limp. And so Jacob has been made all the weaker and smaller before his brother. We have no idea how it plays out or how that influences, but we know this. In the next chapter, Jacob walks up to his brother with his women and children as weak as a person could be, with a limp, tired, and he bows down seven times, showing honor to his brother. And in the moment we've all been waiting for, skip to verse 4, we see how his brother responds to this entire setup. Genesis 33, 4 says, And Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. No one saw that coming. Jacob certainly didn't. I'm just immediately reminded of the story of the prodigal son. It's basically the same language. Esau runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, and they both cry. When I get to that part of the story, I sometimes want to cry too. They go on and they talk, but I want to focus on something that Jacob says. So, Genesis 33, skip to verse 10, Jacob tells Esau this. He says, to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. When Esau embraces him and forgives him and accepts him, Jacob says, that's just like seeing the face of God, which is what he says about last night where he fought God all night. Something about fighting God all night was a similar experience to his brother embracing him. Both made him feel as if he was seeing the face of God. I want to step back and look at the big picture for a second. We have to realize that God fighting Jacob doesn't happen in a void. It happens in the midst of this potentially dangerous conflict between brothers. I mean, it's right in the middle of it. It's placement, um, also the ways that the stories mirror each other. And if you get into literary criticism, there's all kinds of like similar word choice. Even him saying that, you know, the face of God showing up in both stories. There's this mirror. This, these stories are, seem to be very intricately connected on purpose. Jacob's conflict with his brother seems to be intricately tied with 
Jacob's wrestling with God. And I pondered this for a while, and I want to share a few thoughts on why. Scripture teaches us that our relationships, yes, even our conflicts with other people, are intricately connected to our relationship with God. That the way we treat other people impacts our standing with God. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says it like this. It says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. As we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. But Matthew 6 goes on. He says, the reverse is also true. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. If I don't forgive others, God can't forgive me. That's what it says. The conflict you have with other people impacts your relationship with God. Consider it another way. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the goats and the sheep, Jesus tells them that when they feed and clothe and visit and care for people, that they are, in fact, basically doing that for God. And then he says the opposite is also true. If you don't clothe and feed and visit people, it's as if you are neglecting Jesus himself. Yeah, the way you treat others somehow connects us and impacts our relationship with God. Or John, 1 John 4.20 says it like this, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. A liar, he says. You say you love God, but hate someone? You don't know the first thing about loving God. So we're told that our relationships with others somehow mysteriously are tied to our relationship with God. If we hate our brother or sister, it's like we hate God. If we don't care for or, or love or are generous to our brothers and sisters, it's as if we're not doing that to God. In other words, if we are fighting with our brothers and sisters, it is as if we are fighting with God. And if we fight each other... It's like we're fighting with God. The whole story of Jacob is defined as a wrestling match between Jacob and Esau. But we see here in this story that it culminates as a wrestling match with God because it is. To fight each other is to fight God. And I might take it one step further. God shows up before Esau's confrontation. Jacob fights God first uh, all night. Uh, and I'm guessing that Whatever fear or apprehension or tension or anger that Jacob still had for his brother, I'm guessing he got a lot of that out wrestling all night. As if God was this father watching two sons bicker, and he finds one. He says, hey, why don't you take it out on me? Let's see, let's see what you got. And by the end, he's so tired of fighting the dad that the brother's not mad at his brother anymore. I think that Jacob teaches us this. If we wrestle with God we might not end up wrestling with others. But if we wrestle with others, we are already, already wrestling with God. And I wonder if that wasn't what God was doing with Jacob, taking him on, taking the frustration and pain that Jacob had for Esau, taking it on himself so that it wouldn't have to be in their relationship anymore, that God would take the fight we have towards each other and take it upon himself, that God would free us from the violence that we have towards each other so, so that we wouldn't have to have it towards each other. I, I can't say, but as followers of Jesus, the one who hung on the cross and took so much on, that sounds like something God would do. What I can say is this. That after these two encounters with God and with Esau, after his encounter with God and after getting a new name, after he's made peace with his brother, interestingly enough, he fights God and has made peace with his brother, this great reversal of what we expect. But after all of that, he buys lamb, and the first thing he does is he builds an altar to worship God. So if you want to, you can skip to verse 20 in chapter 33. 
It's the end of the chapter, the end of this particular story. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. He called it El Elohi Israel, which can be translated as the God of Israel or quite possibly as the mighty God of Israel. Up to this point, God has been known as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. In other words, the God of Jacob's father and grandfather. But here, for the first time, Jacob refers to God as the God of Israel. In other words, his God. The mighty God of Israel, the God of Jacob, his new name. The, the, his faith becomes personal. No longer just a family thing, but his thing. It took wrestling with God and reconciling with his brother for God to no longer just be the God of his family, the God of his father, but his God. And, and the same, I think, is going to be true for us. If you want your relationship with God to move from an idea or something that's been handed to you to something that's personal, that means something, that changes your life, it's going to take probably similar things. It's probably going to take more than one night of wrestling with God. Any amens in the room? <laughs> probably more than one night of wrestling with God. And it's probably going to take a few confrontations with people you don't want to have, where you at least attempt reconciliation, where you at least attempt to put yourself out there and try to mend what has been broken, where you choose to humble yourself, where you choose to be generous, when otherwise you'd rather be doing a hundred other things. If you want your relationship with God to be real, it's not one or the other. He doesn't build the altar after he wrestles with God. He builds the altar after he wrestles with God and then is made peace makes peace with his brother. It's true, we'll probably walk with a limp, but we'll know God in ways we never imagined. For it is in wrestling with God and making peace with others. And don't get those flipped. I mean, we're still at peace with God, but I think if God had us choose between wrestling with God and wrestling with others, I know which one God would choose. Wrestling with God and making peace with others that I think in that context, our relationship with God becomes something you could never dream of. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks once again for the example of Jacob, and more specifically, the way in which you've chosen to interact. You, um, in this passage especially, surprised me, and honestly, Lord, uh, confused me at times. That in the midst of such a difficult conflict. Maybe you knew how it would end, but, but certainly Jacob didn't. In the midst of such tens tension and, and loneliness and fear that you show up and you wrestle. Um, Lord, I don't know if that's just because that's Jacob's love language or because you had a lesson to teach him, but I do know that you have a heart that stoops to our level and you're willing to engage with us in ways that are not fake or meaningless or just a show. You're willing to get beat up in the process. We see that when you came as Jesus, who was certainly beat up in the process, who died and rose again so that we, may not, we might have new life. Would we thank you that even though it's often our fault, that the conflict in our lives and our conflict with you is because we're, we've messed up, that you're still willing to get down to our level and find a way to make it right. 
and that you'd even be beat up in the process. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.